go. Hey everyone, thanks for joining. We'll be going live with the Sheelys this evening um, while we do our live recording of the Accused podcast to go over today's court happenings. Um, we've got a lot to talk about. We had the two witnesses today. We'll discuss you know, the schedule. But in the meantime, while we wait for a few people to join, feel free to check us out on our other social media platforms. We've, we're on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and obviously TikTok. So thanks for joining us. All right, we got a lot to talk about today now that I have my outline. Um, big day in the Alec Murdoch trial. You know, the defense kind of came right out of the gates. Swinging. Uh, swinging for the fences with, well, um, well, after they got reprimanded. Right. I guess, <laughs> I guess we could mention that. So generally in, in South Carolina, most rules of court, um, lawyers aren't really supposed to comment on cases while the proceedings are going. So that can kind of get you in a little bit of trouble. This case being such a high profile case um, and so much independent investigation and a lot of, uh, you know, lots of people kind of reaching out to the lawyers in question there are lots of press conferences and so it kind of got baked into this case for the past two years there's just a lot of social media engagement with the lawyers themselves um, jim griffin in particular what has used his twitter feed to respond to things um, whether he was right to do that or not but certainly once a trial proceeding begins and the jurors get sworn there's a really um, kind of important duty to not influence witnesses jurors or even as judge Newman said today you know he doesn't want to be influenced not that you really could with him he's got such of a, a strong personality and a clear mind but he basically started court today um, kind of jokey at first but then got very very serious saying that Jim Griffin um, his, his Twitter sharing of an of a article kind of saying how the investigation was a little bit sloppy. That was the first thing that Judge Newman saw on his Twitter feed, and he was kind of joking a little bit at the time, you know, Mr. Griffin, I'm not friends with you on Twitter. And that got a little bit of a laugh in the courtroom, but then Judge Newman got very serious about it, saying, you know, you are not to do that again. He cited the rules of professional conduct. Um, regarding not influencing matters like that and heaven forbid a juror see it so you know Jim Griffin kind of made a point for the record that he wasn't you know writing anything he just reshared an article and that was that but it, I don't think this is a situation where Judge Newman would look favorably on any other engagements by any witnesses or lawyers certainly moving forward Right, and this was such an unusual case, and you got to remember that there was an HBO special <laughs> where Jim Griffin was heavily quoted prior to the trial, <laughs> and that to me was unusual. I mean, of course, when HBO comes knocking as a lawyer, you may want to take the opportunity, but it's pretty rare that you take the opportunity before the trial's even started. Um, but here that occurred, but then you have the jury selection process, and so you know, there's so much attention and publicity that you would expect that, that most of that would have been shaken out during that process, that people would have been struck from the jury, that had any preconceived notion or formed an opinion based even on the HBO special. But once that trial is going and that jury is sworn, 
it's very rare and it's typically a big no-no to really make any public comment about it or anything that might get back to the jury or even have the appearance of impropriety of trying to influence the court. <laughs> and that was the, the point the court was trying to make right after the gate was, hey, I saw you shared this, this Washington Post article that said this evidence collection in this case was sloppy. I mean, what are you trying to do here? And, you know, I, I was actually talking with you, Brian, before that even came up today. I was like, well, that was a little dicey. That was an interesting judgment call, but he... Right. I mean, we're not friends <laughs> with Jim Griffin on Twitter, I don't think, but that was the first thing we saw. It was all in our feeds, and we are like, oh, because you really can't. I mean, he didn't make a specific comment. He was just sharing, but it could really get sideways if you did anything more than that. And so it was, it's not a good day to start with a nice little scolding from the judge. It's not really what you want to start out with um, in terms of setting the tone as you really start presenting the meat of your case. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, we've been thinking about the defense case and who they're gonna put up next. And we were, you know, on WLTX last night and kind of asked the same questions about, you know, trial, kind of forecast, you know, what's the defense going to do? And I think Luke and I both agreed based on how the state's case went and how the defense was cross-examining those on those issues, that they were certainly going to put up a pathologist, the defense would, somebody that they've hired on their own. They were certainly going to put up some kind of crime scene expert, uh, reconstruction expert, and then they, in terms of expert people, probably most likely a firearms expert. Um, and then along with a number of lay witnesses, people that have knowledge of the situation, like family. So we've, we've been noticing for the length of this trial that, you know, Buster has uh, been there in the courtroom. He's been referenced. I think Jim Griffin or Dick Arpulini made him stand up at one point in time and kind of, you know, raise his hand and identify himself. And so right out of the gates today, Buster, um, was called to the stand and you know hannah as a as i guess i'm always interested in your perspective because you're smart and you know you've got good thoughts on things but you know we got two trial lawyers here what from your perspective as not being a trial lawyer what is that how does it make you feel for the defense to call a, a statutory victim in this right. case someone that in most double murder cases he would sit behind the prosecution but what tell me about mm -hmm. your what's your gut say about that so that's definitely very interesting and I think you know it's a very emotional take because right you're pulling uh, a testimony from someone who's you know been wronged like he lost his mom he lost his brother and so to speak you know for the defense and also kind of circling back to focusing on the character of Alec Murdoch you know I think it was really powerful and an interesting take and I think you know we've had so much technical um, you know, experts and technical testimonies that it's really important for the jury to see Buster up there on the stand and hear what he has to say. And the prosecution didn't really touch him very much, I don't think. What do you guys think about that? Well, I think they treated him like a live grenade, and they're not used to cross-examining a statutory victim, you know, the direct relative. Look, just for the audience, we keep on saying statutory victim. Tell, tell everybody what that means to be a statutory victim. Well, there's a victim's bill of rights that lists certain people designated as victims based on their relation to someone who's deceased. So he's clearly 
the son and the brother of the decedents. So in most murder cases, he is lockstep with the state. He's trying to help them because in most murder cases, that victim trusts and believes that whoever the state arrested is responsible for the death of his loved one. Well, here, very clearly from the position of Buster in the courtroom throughout this case to the fact that the state didn't call him, you know, he saw rumors on the internet about whether he's flipping, flipping off Mark Tinsley or just kind of scratching his nose. But by calling him, it is very clear that he is on the side of the fence. He's, it's, it's, it's an, even though he wasn't asked the question specifically, it is an unequivocal statement that he does not believe that his father killed his mother and his brother. He didn't ask that, he wasn't asked that question specifically. But by testifying to very specific things to help the defense that really clear up a lot of these issues that the state has been laying their breadcrumbs from circumstantial evidence, we can go through that here in a little bit, he's made a big, bold statement who what he thinks about this case. Right. Um, and so basically they used him, you know, I recall, and I, you know, you and I were debating this, you know, I personally felt since the floodgates were wide open in terms of you know, Alec Murdoch's character being on trial. You know, normally in cases, the defendant doesn't want to ever say, I would never do that. You know, when we are preparing clients to testify at trial, we say, listen, don't fall into that mistake. Don't say I would never, or else the court, as we've seen here in the past month of trial, can open some doors, can open doors to other crimes, can open doors to other things in your past that you don't want the jury hearing. So. I know you, Luke, and I were kind of disagreeing a little bit on this, but I would have really pressed Buster on, you know, you don't think your father would have done this, or else you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be sitting behind him this entire time. And they never did that, Luke. What's your, what's your thought on why the defense didn't, since all the character stuff, the bad character stuff is already in, why tiptoe around? Well, to me, it's a very technical rule of evidence. I mean... Lay witnesses are not allowed to provide their opinion on an ultimate issue in the case. So that's just a rule of evidence. And here, the ultimate issue is who the hell killed Maggie and Paul Murdoch? So yes, the character evidence door has been opened or either it was allowed um, or motive and things like that. But I think, I mean, if it were me, I'd still ask that question. I don't care if I get objected to or not because I know Buster's going to say no. Dad didn't, I don't believe Dad did it. It's objectionable, so that's why I don't think Jim Griffin went there with that. But he still is kind of backdooring in his father's good character, you know, talking about, you know, showing images of them having a good time together at Memorial Day, loving, you know, being there for them, and really giving us insight into the day-to-day um, reactions and interactions. And we can go through some of this, but some of this, I mean, really critical is the, the concept that through GPS evidence mm -hmm. that they're insinuating that Murdoch got rid of the weapon somewhere around the wood line of maybe his parents' house because he, he didn't park at the front. He went around back and a lot of it was made of that. And Buster says, look. If you're going there at night, it's very common for the family to, to pull around to the back entrance, which is very much closer to where grandpa and grand, grandma slept, 
because you're not disturbing them as much. It's easier to get access. And he says that was just routine. And, and they actually introduced some photographs and it kind of does give the jury a good idea of how that would be fairly normal. This wasn't some obscure entrance. It's a very nice house with a porch and steps leading up. And you also got to see in the distance, it wasn't like a wood line where you could chuck some guns. I mean, there was a very distinct cookout kind of shed where grandpa liked to have his third Thursday cookouts. Um, and then there was like another kind of utility shed, but there really wasn't a place to quickly stash a gun. And it really explained something that seemed so nefarious by the state. Now, John Meadows, who was assigned to cross-examine cross you know, Buster, which again, you described as kind of a live grenade, on that issue of, of Almeida and kind of talking about the back of the house being used and that would not be abnormal, um, the only thing you could really do is say, and when was the first time that you kind of told anybody about that setup? And you know, Buster said, well, it would have been like, Four or five days ago, so basically, once the trial started, you you start talking to you know your daddy's lawyers about that, and you know I, I you know that's the, about the only kind of rigorous impeachment that could really be done on him as a statutory victim, um, you know. But and I had to step out for a meeting, Luke, real quick. But did Buster talk about the blue raincoat at all? No, he was not asked about whether he recorded, he recognized that or anything. That really wasn't touched and. And to your point, you're right, it's hard to cross-examine a victim like that, but you could show and say, look, you love your dad. You do anything for him. He's your last living, closest relative. You don't want to see him go to prison. You can't believe in your heart of hearts that he would kill your mom and your brother, can you? No. And so you can, you can show that he's got this built-in bias based on his own love and his own psyche cannot allow him to believe that his father could have done these things. That's about all you can do, but like other things, like the question from Mr. Metters about whether you get mad if your brother used your fake ID is like, where, where are you going with that? Like, do you think Buster killed him? I mean, like, that was kind of weird, but he was kind of fumbling, but other things that were good. Um, he talked about the phone calls that day and how, how much this seemingly loving family just peppered each other with phone calls, mom to brother, dad to mom, mom to dad, and back and forth, and that day was no different. And like I said on, when we were interviewed on the news last night, if you're Alec Murdoch and you're, this, you're either this criminal mastermind or you're, or you're this clumsy criminal, like which is it? You can't be both because you can't have this perfect crime where all the evidence is disposed of in like 16 minutes and yet do really crazy, stupid things like sometimes he, he does. Um, so if, if you are this cynical, cold killer and you're trying to create an alibi, you're going to call, one of the people he called was Buster right away on, on that road to Almeida. So Hannah, I mean, you've got a brother and you've got a father who's a, actually a lawyer. So that's, that's a criminal offense lawyer, so that's interesting, but... And, you know, not probably a whole lot uh, older than, you know, Buster and all of them. I, mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about your age, but like, <laughs> can you put yourself in that position yes. of being on the stand and, and testifying about a call that you thought was an everyday phone call? So on the way after the alleged killing, well, not the alleged, but after the killings, um, you know, Alton Murdoch's supposed to be leaving Moselle and driving to Almeida to see his mama. 
And he, one of the first things he does is he calls his son, Buster. Can you, can you imagine getting on the stand with your kind of family dynamic and testifying in support of your father that it was a normal type call and, and, and so uneventful, so in the normal course of their relationship, calling all the time, driving someplace. What, how does that make you feel? I mean, do, yeah. you, do you feel like that would be something special for you to do or something that Buster would have to, he'd have to believe in his dad's innocence to really do that, wouldn't he? I believe so. And I mean, he obviously didn't know at the time that his mother and brother had been killed. And so, you know, answering that call, talking to your dad is just any other, like any other time. Um, and I don't see why he would have, you know, if he had any suspicion or anything like that, I feel like that would have come through today. Um, again, I haven't, I haven't caught up on everything, all of today's events, but personally for me, I don't see why he would have any, yeah, any inkling of reason to believe that anything was, was off, especially with just the inner workings of that family. Again, how tight knit you said that they are, um, I know that like something that people talk about a lot, just like seeing people's comments and questions, did they mention today at all the calls between Alec and his son Buster when he was in jail? Because those have been very interesting and heavily dissected. They did not. And, you know, I think that's probably because now they will... Unless, unless the defense won some pretrial motion about jail phone calls, which we as an audience weren't really privy to because all that happened behind closed doors, mm -hmm. typically a jail phone call from a defendant, somebody can come in against the defendant when he takes the stand. So maybe they're thinking it's not appropriate for Buster. Okay. Um, it's definitely hearsay unless it's the defendant himself, you know, where it's admission by a party opponent or maybe a statement against interest. So I think we could see some of that if uh, Alec Murdoch takes a stand, but they also, you know, Buster is this delicate victim. On the one hand, he's clearly here for his dad, but if they go in there and try to beat up on him, it could backfire in the way that they're, they're treating him. So I think they did what they could. So that's why John Metters was pretty, as they say, had the kid gloves on, you know. He wasn't laying a lot of hard blows. I know there was some critiquing of that in social media that he should have been grilled more because he's been sitting behind his dad the entire time. He should have been kind of cross-examined on the emotional moment of this and really kind of get him to put his beliefs out there. Um, so it was done in a much more delicate way that obviously was strategic by John Metters, you know, probably, you know, a, a, a thought of containment. You don't want an emotional, if pushed, I mean, he, he was pretty, stable up there, he wasn't, you know, showing a whole lot of emotions, um, but I think maybe the fear was at the stake was that if we pushed him too hard, we may not like what gets pushed right. back at us because, you know, if you basically decide that your father's innocent and you're gonna support him, any kind of aggressive push could have a reaction on the stand that may not look good in front of jurors. I mean, that's gotta be it. Yeah, I think the state viewed Buster kind of the way the defense viewed Mark Tinsley. Such a powerful, spring-loaded weapon that you really just want to get in and get out. You know, Tinsley had just was loaded for bear on all kinds of damaging things about the boat case lawsuit, and so they they had way less for Tinsley even than Buster. But Buster 
was really negating a lot of the circumstantial evidence for the state. Um, other than the car, he talked about you know his dad's demeanor, that phone call where he, where he got, where his dad told him, "Are you sitting down? You know, I'll tell you what happened, what I found today." Just the emotional wreckage that was consistent with real grief. Yeah. The fact that Buster's packing his bags, he's very much describing these clothes. Um, he's describing how in the summertime it would be very common for his dad to shower after being So he, he kind of went through that because I know that's been mm, heavily discussed in this trial. There's some missing clothing. The clothing from the Snapchat video is, some would call it a, a miniature smoking gun in this case because anytime something's missing, you want to know well, where it go. And so he, he basically testified it would have been very normal for Alton Murdoch to shower. I think he even said that when he got there, he probably showered the next day and everyone was showering. Right. So he kind of made that seem like it wasn't that um, extraordinary of an of a issue. Um, showering on the farm in the summer after going out and touring the land. He talked about cell phone coverage being very bad and that, that was pretty right. cool. Tell, tell everybody about that, Talk about the, roof, the roofing situation down at... Well, this is the country and he said that cell phone coverage was spotty and that uh, they got uh, the, the, the hangar area, the kennel area had this metal roof, which you can see in the, in the crime scene photos. And he said that the coverage was bad down there and that his dad, it wouldn't be abnormal for his dad to leave the phone up at the main house. He also said the main house had pretty poor section two because they recently installed a big metal roof up there, which you can see. So it says that's just, you can't read a whole lot into that. It's that the, what the takeaway from that is that it's not as sinister as the state would lead the jury to believe that he conveniently left his phone up there if he's down there. Of course, that's the big question. It seems, seems pretty much the defense has conceded that he was down there, Alec, he just didn't have his phone. And it was interesting that Metters didn't asked him to confirm his dad's voice um, on that video that shows Cash the dog. They didn't really go there. Um, I think at this point it's a, it's, it's a fact that everybody has begrudgingly or not agreed to. And how the defense explains it is another question because it is consistent with what he told police the very next day. That's your big inconsistency. That's your lie. That's why Alec is going to have to get up there and, and do some explaining. Otherwise, He's in big trouble. Yeah, the other point I have here, Luke, is that um, they fleshed out through Buster Maggie's routine that she would, you know, when she was at Edisto, she would have some of the dogs with her, and then the day that she came back, the, the dogs that she normally had with her in Edisto were there that night. I, I guess the inference that they're trying to pull from Buster there was that it wasn't a quick, kind of unexpected luring of Maggie back to Moselle. It was more of a, she was gonna stay for a while, right? Yeah, you know, they, everybody brings up Bubba, the yellow oh, lad. Poor Bubba, poor Bubba. Drugs through the mud, and, and it's taken a while to kind of figure out. Maybe we don't quite have the full Bubba story yet, but there's been a lot of specifics about Bubba and being kind of unruly, and that he listens to Alec Murdoch more than others, but he's kind of just a pain in the ass. But Buster said, yes, he listens to Alec. He is difficult, but we do have that, you know, gun dog shot collar on. And he's, he minds his P's and Q's, I think was a direct testimony <laughs> when he has that. But it was pretty significant that I think for company or for protection or what have you, Maggie would take the dogs with her if she was going to be an Edisto. And so since they were back, 
or there that night, it, it really meant that this wasn't, it kind of took away from the concept that this was a quick lure by Alec Murdoch to ambush his wife, get her here for a quick, you know, random reason. She was planning on staying, it was more than just a couple hours or a night. And I guess that's the point of Bubba. We might hear more about Bubba. He might have some relevance. Um, it was interesting. They, go ahead. Actually, you kept on bringing up Bubba today in, I think it was in the expert's testimony. Was that you talking talk about Bubba? You kept on saying, like, what are they going to do with Bubba? Mm, that was with Buster. Okay, that was with okay. Buster. Okay. All right, you covered that. Never mind. Right. I mean, Bubba is low to the ground. Bubba could be the shooter, but... Um, <laughs> Um, but they also talked about his awareness of his dad's opioid addiction and he thought he had kind of kicked it, but and they also kind of got through the way the family resolves conflicts, but there really hasn't been a lot of um, violence in the house. They resolve things civilly. You know, he was spanked as a kid, but it's not like any of them are physically abusing each other. So just to really show that violence would be so unusual but of course, you know, he also had no, no idea about his father's financial um, dealings, the, the thefts, you know, the debt. He had no idea whatsoever about that. And they also, I don't know I'm going on here a little bit, but the, they made a point to show that from Buster's perspective, the family wasn't that concerned with the civil lawsuit about the boat crash. You know, it wasn't less this financial implosion, gloom and doom. It stressed out the mom. She didn't like reading about it in the papers. And, of course, they got some negative reaction from the community, some threats, some people yelling at cars at Paul, maybe top stepping up to him in a bar. But they were really, per Buster at least, more concerned with the criminal case, you know, directly at Paul for that boat crash. And it wasn't so much the financial debt. So that that kind of cuts against the state's whole motive to say that Alec, due to the looming financial crisis, would just kill his family for a distraction. So they got a lot of good points. If you're, if you're for the defense, they got a lot of good points out of Buster. All right, so, Buster, oh, and sorry. One more thing about Buster. Maybe the most critical thing, which I always, I discounted this from the state because I thought it was a cheap shot early on when they played the video of Alec Murdoch in the sled car and tried to insinuate that he said, I did him so bad. Yeah, yeah. And so just, just to put a pin in that, Buster, who knows his dad's voice very well, said, no, it's they did him so bad. And that wasn't the first time he had mentioned that phrase, apparently. Apparently, it's something he had been kind of repeating prior to that, kind of in his grief to Buster. And so I would think that puts a pin in kind of a, at least from a very biased defense perspective, an ugly chapter of state, the state trying to put words in someone's mouth. Yeah, and that was related to that one investigator that was trying to be, I don't, I don't even know if the state realized he was going to say that when he got up there, but that... Oh, yes, they did. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, kind of content and questioning surrounding that, and I, you know, we, you know, weeks of discussion on that, but so yeah. I think it's safe to say that was put to bed. Yeah. We like cases based on real evidence, not manufactured evidence. Well, let's talk about real evidence because um, we do we do want there were only two witnesses today, and they both were fascinating. Uh, we had Buster, Buster, I think we'll be done with him, and we want to talk about the expert Mike Sutton, and we want to talk about him in a way that 
flushes him out, but also gives us enough time to answer questions. I've already got two questions from some of our live viewers here mm -hmm. that are really good questions. So we want to kind of leave about 20, 30 minutes on that. But Luke, as, as lawyers that have put up experts just like this, um, tell everybody about your thoughts on Mr. Mike Sutton. Very powerful witness, um, highly qualified in mechanical engineering. I think what he officially was qualified as an expert in this particular case was a shooting incident reconstruction expert, analysis and acoustic engineering and accident reconstruction. And so he's been in the, in the field for 30 some years. He's trained under another high expert and just really, he's all into physics and math and the way things react to each other. And when, whenever I get a, I love a crime scene analysis. I like to do my own. We like to do recreations. Mm -hmm. We like to use experts like this. I was unaware of them. I've definitely taken down his credentials and his number. <laughs> but the beautiful thing about math is that math can't lie. Math has no bias. Math has no preformed opinion. All of us here have biases. I'm a biased defense lawyer. I can see both sides of the coin, and I like to think I can give an objective analysis of some evidence, how it could be good or bad, but maybe I can't. But math does not lie. And so, well, Luke, yeah, we got, he covered a, t a couple different areas of the crime scene concerning right. both Paul and Maggie, and then he did some acoustic Right. Uh, assessment. But since we're talking about math, math, let's skip right to, we'll cover the other areas in a second, the Paul's crime scene, essentially, if we're talking about two separate scenes here, inside um, of the feed room. And he, he really used math pretty effectively. And just, just to be clear, this was a very savvy expert. I would put him right up there with Deputy Kinsley for the state. Completely different personalities, both highly intelligent, but he was on that level, one of the best experts in this trial so far. And I think, you know, for what it's worth, David Fernandez did as about as well as he could do with him. You know, Dave, David Fernandez um, did a good job cross-examining that very difficult expert, but sometimes they're just too good. But let's talk about the math. So on the on the shooting scene with Paul in that feed room. Luke, talk, talk to everybody about your counting of the math and how, why that was effective in, in, in our opinions since we've discussed it. Well, the math in this, he's, he's starting a lot with the basis for his mathematics is a lot of what SLED agent Worley had already calculated based on identifying evidence like impact points, whether it's a 300 blackout impact point or the feed room where, where buckshot may have gone you know she's done measurements basic trajectories but she just didn't extrapolate as far as Sutton did so the Paul feed room um, you know and, and I know some criticisms we we've taken we put an expert like that is well you weren't there that day you know you're how could you know and, and so no it's not realistic to challenge an expert. Experts are allowed to rely on other experts, to use their math, to use their science, whether it's a pathologist or an expert like this. It's not realistic to say that Sutton is going to get hired that day and fly in and push sled out of the way and say, let me have access to that room. It's not the way it works, but he, you want to have an expert who's gone to the scene and here he's found things that sled didn't find. 
But he's also, and that's never a good look for law enforcement. I mean, because um, SLED is the best in the state at collecting evidence, processing crime scenes, um, and it seems like it was clear here that they, they missed something. That's true. So you got, you know, he agrees somewhat with SLED. You've got this first shotgun blast to Paul's chest while he's literally in the feed room coming across his chest and and he can tell the angle of that because through science and powers of deduction, we know it's a, it was the, the cartridge, the shot shell was a nine pellet buckshot, which is big. That's how many pellets there are. He read the report that one pellet was found in, in Paul's chest. Um, seven were recovered, giving you eight. And then one he found in the window, so it was not recovered. So that's your total nine. He can look through that windowsill and see a point that the sled agent noted worthy of an impact in a tree. So he's making a very taut line, coming through that pellet point, and kind of approximating based on that window trajectory the barrel angle of that shotgun. And so that's why he's tied up to a tripod. He's able to basically determine the angle, and then he's trying to figure out well, could. Is that consistent with, say, a person of normal height, and he had pictures in his PowerPoint, holding it in a comfortable, realistic way? Yes, it was. So that first shot was. Um, and he's also doing the second shot. He didn't really go dive deep. I think we're going to hear from another expert. But what he determined based on even the pathologist's testimony and Worley's own analysis is because you don't have stippling on that shot, you know that you're at least three feet away, maybe further. And the shot is at such an angle, I think 45 degrees, and based on the, the blood spatter and the biological material of his brain, unfortunately, on the ceiling and on the top of that door, that you've got a, a shotgun being held essentially kind of like this. And so he's saying the position of that, don't fall your shot. <laughs> As he tries to show the position of it in relation, it's very, a normal size shotgun has to be, based on his testimony, very much low to the floor. Now, not necessarily accounting for like the super duper sawed off illegal shotgun, but any of shotguns that possibly would have been owned by the Murdochs, hunting shotguns, are really just too long where you can't really get that angle unless you butt it into the floor for a normal sized person at the angle. So there's a lot of question marks over that. I think we're gonna get some answers um, from other experts, but that was very fascinating. And then even more fa fascinating to me. Well, can I interject? Yeah, yeah, you go. Ahead. I mean, I know you're, <laughs> and just for those of you that are getting to know us as lawyers and you know, we're the, we're twins, we think, very similarly about a lot of things. We fight like brothers, but in, in trial, we're a unified front. So my brother gets obsessed about crime scenes. He loves crime scenes. He loves digging into the evidence. And so he could just, and he could have a whole podcast on just one scene from this one expert, even though we're gonna have really four or five things to talk about. But before you get on another role, uh, I found it pretty interesting as well that they subtly, through discussing kind of, you know, running that pink line through the hole, uh, up through the tree and into that windowsill, they were able to kind of approximate the height of someone that would be holding that shotgun. And it was kind of established at like an average 
average heighted person. So I think the expert or whoever was holding that shotgun, they estimated him about 5'10". Right. And that was juxtaposed to all the testimony we're going to get to later that really kind of infuriated the state about a, a significantly shorter individual that would have been using the, um, the firearm on Maggie. And so that, you know, plays into the two-person shooter theory that I think the defense would like to play out here. I think you're right. And I also think given uh, Alec Murdoch's somewhat, not extreme height, but very well heightened, he's 6'4", so even the first shot to Paul, he'd have to kind of have it a little lower than even the expert had it. It's not going to be, for, if Alec Murdoch's having that shot, it's not going to be in a firing position tucked into his shoulder. It's going to be more from the hip. And then when you, when you turn it that way for the, the kill shot to the head and neck, making it far enough away where there's no stippling. Again, it has to be three feet or more, you know, three feet to have no stippling. When you start doing that, it just gets too close to the ground. You start getting some real funky stuff that really, that SLED couldn't explain, the state hasn't explained, and it certainly insinuates two shooters of perhaps not out of Murdoch height. Um, and when you're following this case, you know, I know, you know, sometimes it's hard to follow it live all the time, but when you're reading social media about it or reading a news article about it, are you more drawn to lay witnesses, like, you know, the housekeeper or uh, Buster, for instance, or, or do you find experts, and we had a, a number of interesting experts, what are you more drawn to? What kind of, what do you feel, feel like catches the, the nation's kind of attention better? So, um, I think in the moment when it is live, I think the lay witnesses are perhaps, you know, easier to follow and relate to and like empathize with. Um, but what I've really enjoyed kind of on my end is seeing, uh, the technical, uh, evidence broken down. Um, cause it, it is tough. Like when it is live and you're just kind of like, Hearing it time and time again, it's like at 9.06, da 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 nine, you know, and you, you kind of maybe have a hard time following. But I think that there's been a great job done by, you know, some reporters or just kind of fanatics of the case to put out, uh, like, broken down information that puts the technical stuff kind of all in one picture. Whether it's like, you know, I've seen a spreadsheet put together of, like, every minute and it's color-coded, which is really nice, like based on whether it was Paul, Maggie, or Alec. I, I'm more drawn to that because it is just the facts as opposed to... And so that's an interesting you know. point you make because the, the jury doesn't have right, that. The, right. jury, the jury is listening to often, mm -hmm. you know, highly technical expert testimony. Again, experts get to offer an opinion they get to really speak beyond what, what a layperson can. Mm -hmm. And so the jury doesn't get the benefit of Avery Wilkes. They don't get the benefit of a lot of the, you know, investigative journalists that have been kind of rehashing this uh, trial for everyone else to, what does this all mean? And, yeah. you know, Luke and I can kind of follow along and understand, but the, the jury are going to be looking at these experts without taking notes again. They can't, they're not taking notes and, and trying to, you know, assimilate data. And so, I, you know, as much as this guy, this expert was so good in our opinion, and we'll talk about it more, 
And that's why I think moments like when Dave Fernandez, you know, he, at one point I looked over to Luke and I was like, you know, Dave's doing a good job, but he's really, it's almost like a redirect. He, he, he was able to challenge uh, Mr. Sutton a couple times on his lack of knowledge in certain fields that he ultimately wasn't qualified as an expert in front of the jury. So it was kind of like, well, why are you asking me about pathology? I'm, I'm not a pathologist, but in terms of his uh, schematics and uh, physics, in terms of the, you know, the line of the line of trajectory of the bullets that really was able to establish on Maggie's crime scene, a much shorter individual. I thought Dave Fernandez did an exceptional job dealing with that expert the best he could. I mean, our opinion is the defense has a great um, way to kind of recap to a jury. There's no way Alec Murdoch could have killed Maggie. No way. But Dave Fernandez did a good job of walking the expert through his own data and taking out a measuring tape and saying, all right, so if I backed up to here, that'd be what? 41 inches? Okay. Holding it up, getting the expert to confirm, and then kind of getting on one knee beside it. And, you know, the expert, Mr. Sutton, did a good job of saying, well, no, no, you're missing, you're missing, you're missing this. And Luke will cover that a little bit more later. But we're talking about the jurors don't have anything to write with. And if they don't understand what's happening and how the expert is explaining it, they may remember a visual moment like what Dave Fernandez did. Yeah. So kudos to him for taking a really difficult witness. But maybe that visual aid is the only thing the jurors remember about it. When Mike Sutton kind of explained it away in a very scientific way afterwards, that we totally got that maybe the 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 twelve members of the jury just will not. What do you think? Well, that's right. I mean, I'm a little biased, but um, when you have a challenging witness like that, I mean, you, it's hard to beat them at their own game. And Sutton's game is physics, and Dave Fernandez's game is not physics. He's Totally conversant in this stuff, but he has to kind of pick apart and kind of establish things like, well, because you're not a firearms expert, you can't exactly tell us this about, let's say, how a gun will eject. Um, so, but you know, Sutton wasn't trying to be more than he was, but what he is is enough. And so, if you talk about, really, they did a phenomenal job. They didn't do anything that the state didn't do, except they extrapolated further. I mean, this, this technology called Faro, which allows for 3D imaging of a crime scene based on laser images that create measurements to bring something to life. I've seen it in a few other cases. It's something that SLED, SLED uses on their bigger cases, but clearly Sutton has the ability to do it himself. But then he was superimposing SLEDs crime scene markers, which are of huge significance because they're showing where the shell casings are, and he's superimposing other things like where the bodies are, but then he's taking away certain things like a roof, so you can have a clear angle into a crime scene. The roof is just cut out by the computer. And we're talking about visuals for a jury? That's just... Uh, that's, they're going to eat that up? That, I mean, I've seen that before, and we've actually used some, some data like that before um, for demonstratives for crime scenes. But that was done in an exceptional way. Uh, I know it cost a great deal of money uh, to get that rendition, but essentially you're is visually stimulating for a jury who are, who are mind boggled with this technical data. It's also law enforcement's own measurements and then superimposed 
you know, the defense's theory. And so when you do it like that, right, Luke, when you got law enforcement's data and you're putting your own spin on it, but the data is basically coming from law enforcement, it's really hard to deal with from a state perspective, right? It is. They can't challenge their own evidence. Their own, their own math is the basis for his calculations, their measurements. Their, they just didn't extrapolate out and go, okay, sure, we know, let's say, an angle that a, a bullet went into the quail pen, or we know an angle that a bullet went into the doghouse, but they just didn't extrapolate further to say, well, what does that show? And so that's really what Sutton has done. Sutton has intercepted those two points based on Agent Worley's own math. And then he's basically taken, you know, because you know that the shell casings generally are gonna jet to the right and rear a little bit, you're not gonna go 100 yards behind you and go, could it have come from there? No, it has to be, I think he gave it wiggle room of about a 12 foot radius around Maggie's body to say, okay, let's, let's play within this zone and based on those angles and then natural shooting positions and Alec Murdoch's height of being 6'4", I mean, Dave Fernandez did a good job of making fun of this baby shooter, this 11-year-old, this 12-year-old, but what Sutton testified to is that someone who was 5'2 to 5'4 would have, in that zone of where the shell casings are, to match those trajectories of holding the gun in even a semi-natural position at the hip, even if you were five, you couldn't have held it like a rifle should be held. Um, that even at the hip is the best they could do. That person would be five two to five four. Now that means plenty of women, or particularly short men. Um, well, what about the state's rep, uh, demonstration of getting down on one knee, Luke? Why is that? Why is the jury not to consider that? Well, if you listen to Mr. Sutton, he, he measured, and again, because this is the important part, and that's why Dave did a, Dave Fernandez did an excellent job, right? Really muddying the water on this issue because well, it, it was important for the defense. Well, for a starting point, he measured out Murdoch, and for him to be standing, based on his six four height, that he would have to be holding the gun well below his own knee, like like this. And that's just not a natural shooting position for anybody, especially someone that's trained in firearms, been hunting all his life. Now, the natural question was, well, why couldn't he be taking, you know, more of a kneeling, question, kneeling position, which if you're moving around and you just shot your son, I don't know why you're gonna kneel right like that. A second shooter might have something, some other design, but even based on his measurements, based on Alex Murdoch's tall torso, that it, it still didn't work out unless you distance it's so he's not Sutton's not saying I rule that out completely, he's just saying it's not realistic to assert that as a probability compared to a smaller statured person. You know, five two to five four, we've got a law partner in our office who's five four, and you know, he's probably <laughs> lethal when he gets angry. <laughs> he's a young owner, but like so the whole point is that math, which does not lie, to have a, a more natural shooting position makes it very hard to be Alec Murdoch. I thought that was the most powerful witness they put up. It's science, it's math, and it's based on SLED's own analysis. So very, very good stuff for the defense today on that. So speaking of uh, science, we're gonna move now into sound. And this was actually interesting because 
over the weekend, I was talking to my mom about the case. She's in North Carolina, she's a private investigator, and I was just kind of fleshing out with her, former private investigator, fleshing out with her, and the very first thing she said kind of stopped me when I was recapping you know, the whole story. She was like, well, you know, a shotgun, like, in, or a blackout, you know, 300, like, someone's going to hear that. Right. Well, she was like, I don't, like, wh what are you talking about? And I kind of explained, I was like, well, no, they're on this land, but, but talk to us about sound and, and kind of what all that testing like means for the case. Well, that is the natural assumption is that certainly if, if he was in the main house or had just come back from being at the kennels, Murdoch should have been alerted to a high power rifle or even a, a buckshot blast to go, hey, something bad's happening down there and not just moseyed on to his mom's house. And some people have asserted, well, it's a hunting community, you know, shots at night, could be shooting a hog. It might not be that alarming. But what they, they sought to test through acoustical um, testing equipment specific to registering guns. They tried to account for weather variables. They set up multiple tests where you have somebody manning the weapons down at, at, the, at the kennels. You had Mr. Sutton manning the acoustic equipment in the house. You had certain variables like, well, let's have a TV on at a normal range. Let's have no TV on. Um, you used pretty much as best as you could the same um, caliber weapon. It was a 300 blackout with 300 blackout ammo. You had 12 gauge shotgun shells. Now it wasn't the exact, like it was Winchester versus Federal, I think, but it, it was the same basic grain, nine, pellets and they did test you know Sutton said go and they would shoot into the um, feed room just like Paul took the first shot they would shoot out just to test they would shoot the blackout and the blackout has the highest decibel level and based on it being as a crow flies I think 1141 feet you've got clearly a tree line which yes sure it's grown a little bit since 18 months from the um, time of the incident to the test, but with the tree line still there, that distance, the testing showed at best you maybe could possibly hear the blackout. You definitely would not have heard the shotgun. And so it just really is, brings a lot of credibility to the concept that it wouldn't have alerted him to anything. And, you know, Mike Sutton went to the scene, which gives him, I mean, he's an expert, so, you know, he's a hired gun, a very intelligent hired gun, so he can review data, like he did with some of the measurements that Special Agent Worley did, but then he also went out to the scene himself. You know, I think the jurors really appreciate that, and, you know, he was able to say things very casually, but to me, made a big impact, like it was a well-made home, we got double-pane windows, he was measuring the ambient noise that's kind of naturally in that home, and man, that was important. Um, what, and I just wanna have a little side note here. You know, Luke and I love the use of crime scene experts on a, on a case like this. We certainly would be employing one. Uh, Mike Sutton certainly has our attention, but I'm just, you know, Luke, we had that murder and then a double murder um, a couple years ago over in Edgefield. And, you know, we had a crime scene expert very similar to what they've done with Mike Sutton here. And I'm just thinking about some of the things that we did in that case that were, were good and some things that maybe our expert could have done a little differently. 
So here, you know, um, Dave Fernandez, who again, I think did a, a great job cross-examining this expert, you know, was really cross-examining Mike Sutton on the variables. So you, you know, you have to agree if the humidity is different, time of day, the time of year, you know, all this kind of, all these factors are different. The tree line has grown in 18 months. You understand that trees grow, well, yes. Um, and though, that's gonna change your data from what would have been happening on June 7th. And, you know, in the, in the case we had two years ago or so, that was a real kind of latch that the prosecutor we were up against really kind of used, to, you know, it was a stick that he used to beat our expert over the head with because the expert did, that we employed didn't have the, the right answer that Mike Sutton had today, which was, well, he set up his own weather station to account for variables like humidity or rain. He right. Wanted, he wanted to compare them, but Sutton's data was so significant that at the end of the day, he said it wouldn't have really mattered if it had been more humid. So the data was so significant, it, the variables wouldn't really be a factor, but also the thing that he did that our expert did not do a couple of years ago um, was you know, factor in the variables with specificity enough where the judge would allow that kind of recreation in. That recreation we did too was a separate scene because we didn't have really good access to that scene. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think, I was, Luke and I both kind of looked at each other, was that this expert used similar um, shotgun shells and, uh, you know, rifle shell shells ammunition, I should, I should say, that wasn't exactly the same unique brand and, and make. That, I was a little concerned about that, Luke. Uh, you know, I think you said that was an unforced error, but it wasn't really challenged so much by the state, but could that have been problematic if, if properly examined? Yeah, I mean, it was fleshed out and challenged a little bit by Fernandez. I mean, if, if you know the exact brand, which, which SLED had in evidence, I think it was Federal, 12 gauge. I mean, the Blackout 300 is a Blackout 300. It's a very specific ammunition for that rifle. But where there's a little discrepancy was that they they test fired Winchester, I believe, versus Federal, and it was maybe a three inch shot shell versus a two and three quarters or something like that. So you really want to do it exact. If you're a defense and you got an expert, just get the exact damn ammunition from Sutton's mind for an acoustic at almost 1200 yards it's not going to make the same much of a difference to him but in order to not draw those objections or that those you know accusations of not doing a proper experiment from the defense you really I think I said it was an unforced error because they really just should have <laughs> the bottom line through this through the use of this expert with the acoustic testing you know, he's, he rendered an opinion that someone from inside that house would not have heard the shotgun blasts or the rifle shots. Well, definitely not the shotgun. I think at maybe with no TV on, he opined that you could faintly hear the rifle if you were like listening for it, basically at the decibel level he recorded. But it would have been an open and obvious thing where if Alex up there, he'd be like, holy crap, something's going on with my family. Like, it, yeah. it just would not have been that. And that's a really great experiment that the state didn't do and the defense has brought forth. Something else that has been 
just like heavily examined and talked about on social media specifically has been the suburban um, data and just, you know, Alex moving, you know, the speed in which he was driving, where he was, when he was there. Um, can you guys kind of dive into all that data that was presented? Yeah, well, that was also part of Sutton's analysis. I mean, he he's really, based on his engineering credentials, kind of a jack-of-all-trade, but he was asked to look at a graph of sled pulled speed data that was put on an axis based on mileage. Being, you know, the, a spike at the graph was like the fastest, and you could tell how long. So it was not a sustained speed of like 80 miles an hour, he wasn't hauling ass like as you would think. It was kind of up and down as if you could be accelerating a little bit and slowing. And it really wasn't that different from the sled test drive. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, and I actually missed that portion of the testimony um, when sled was discussing that. The last um, real closer investigator, the data investigator, I'll call him with the, top, the beautiful timeline, you know, just reading up on it on Twitter, it would seem like out Murdoch was hauling ass, 80 miles an hour the entire time. But really, this data chart, which was extrapolated from GM, showed you know kind of some building of speed. And I think we, you know, the charts we're, lo we're looking at showed 80 miles per hour at some points, and then back way down. And you know what what Dick Carputhian says is not evidence, but certainly him saying, "You mean like someone could be passing someone?" Well, sure. You know that makes his point. So that was pretty interesting. Luke, have we touched upon, did, did they a ask Buster if he'd ever ridden with his dad on that road to Almeida and how fast his dad would ever travel? Was that, they didn't touch on the speed, but they did touch on the fact that it was super frequent for the family members, especially if they're driving on a 20 minute drive to grandma's house to make calls, to call their family. You've got this dead time, Buster would do it. Alec would do it, so it wasn't necessary. He could kind of push back on the concept that Alec was building an alibi with his cell phone. It's just what he does when you gonna go see mom. I'm gonna make some phone calls because you know this is normal habit routine. And other people said that Alec's kind of a fidgety guy who has <laughs> doesn't have great focus and just likes to talk on the phone. So um, Buster did say that there was a nice little battle there. Um, Harputlian brought out on direct with this same expert about how the phone might rotate if it was tossed out a window, let's say at highway speeds or 45 miles an hour, which is I think what they're trying to approximate the location of. Now that was a, initially, it was objected to as improper foundation, speculation, uh, and it was that objection was sustained, which kind of got Harpo a little miffed really. And he kind of moved along from it, but then he came back and re, kind of rebuilt his line of questioning. But Luke, explain the whole point of that, that answer that Mr. Sutton gave. All right, Harpo found a way to get in, Harpo, Harpo man. Um, but <clears throat> because you know, the state's theory is that Murdoch has her phone, Maggie's, although they can't exactly account for why earlier his is recording steps, but hers is not if he's got both phones. So let's just put that aside for now. But that he slows down enough to toss the phone out the window and the, the way it orient, orientated or it position changed is consistent with 
maybe him fake calling his wife's phone and then throwing it once it rings. Whereas the defense theory is that some unknown assailant shooter has taken her phone and has just chucked it. And so they really got something to talk about. If you're at 45 miles an hour and something is, let's say, thrown, it's going to be going the same speed as the object that's thrown out of, let's say, a car. Although it could be going, you know, different if you give it some directional force, but certainly it will be rotating. It will be bouncing. And I think it's like 57 feet away off the roadway. And it will, you know, Sutton described a certain amount of like physical force using physics principles that would allow it to stop. But it certainly would be tumbling, or his words, bouncing, rotating, consistent with what the phone was doing. And from Harpootlian's perspective, less consistent with just kind of holding it and calling it. So that was a big battle that we got to see. And the whole point after that long battle of that expert's testimony, I guess the, the, the defensive point was, number one, the speed data was not any kind of slowing down to get rid of a phone is actually kind of uh, accelerating consistently. And then as the point you just stressed, it would have been a, someone would have thrown it in a way that it would have been not in presumably out of Murdoch's hand as a repositioning. It would have been a toss into the woodline, right? Yeah. And it's a toss right after he calls that, calls Maggie's phone for the phone record. So Real interesting, and they were able to use mechanical engineer Sutton for trajectory, acoustics, uh, phone directional tumbling, and even given that he's a guy that works in an accident reconstruction and crashes, like motor vehicle accidents, he was able to say that, that Suburban at, that, at night with its low beams would have immediately seen two bodies laying before it. Um, so he kind of just ticked a lot of boxes for the defense. And that was the last point I just wanted to make sure we covered. I just checked it off my list here, but you know, that was fought over as well. And I almost feel like that was the least valuable point from that particular expert because every person on that jury has driven at night and has turned into a driveway or something. And they know what they're going to see. They know what they're lifetime of experiences driving at night are going to allow. So, you know, the fact that that was objected to pretty strenuously by Mr. Fernandez and then the defense won that particular battle and were able to have him opine as an expert, you know, with his engineering background, to me that was the least powerful point because I think, I think anyone could close on the fact that, yeah, as soon as you turn in, you can see bodies on the ground and you're calling 911. You don't have to like run up and check your pulse and realize they're dead to then feel the need to call 911 when you, when you know that people you care about are out that house or presumably that you care about. And, you know, that fits the defense's narrative and the state can argue all they want that that was just premeditated. And so that, to me, that was less important for, for an expert. You know, Luke, correct me if I'm wrong, the one thing we did not hear, which you know, Luke and I, whenever we put experts up on a murder case, and maybe just these prosecutors are better than most or understand that it, the national audience, but they didn't ask the normal line of questioning of Mr. Expert, how much are you paid to be oh, here? They did. They did? Did, I, did I miss that? You must have gone potty or something. Oh, oh. so they did that same oh, yeah. baseless, boring, because, you know, every, every state investigator is on a salary every prosecutor. So I always find that line of questioning to be very disingenuous because everyone gets paid to do their job. 
Right, and you don't want a, a cheap expert who is desperate for money. So it is, from our very biased perspective, it's a disingenuous line of questioning just to say, because you're being paid, you'll say whatever you're being paid to say, whereas we know, I mean, state has gone to astronomical expense to put up Radowski, to put up Brit Dove, to put up pathologists, I mean, all these people on salary. Even blood spatter experts they never called right. to. We know, we know from uh, pretrial motions that they got uh, this out-of-state blood spatter expert that cost like 12 grand, even though they knew that there was actually no blood on the shirt before they sent it out for testing. So we hate to see it, but I mean, we didn't hear anything crazy. Sutton answered those questions quite well. I said, look, yeah, um, I've got a master's in engineering. I've been doing this 30 plus years. I charge three fifty an hour, and yeah, I put a lot of time into this. Maybe forty to fifty hours. Yeah, it's one of those you get what you pay for kind of answers, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, don't don't ask what we charge for a case like this. No. <laughs> We've got a ton of questions from you guys that are watching live on TikTok that we will take now. Starting first, we took down a few questions that were asked earlier. Um, but if you guys have any questions, go ahead and drop them here, and we'll kind of we'll tackle them as they come in. Um, starting first, I know somebody wanted to, and a few people have kind of asked similar questions to this, like Alec Murdoch is a known drug user. Um, how, you know, could that be reason for some of his inconsistencies, for some of the lies? How could a known addict, you know, use of opioids, crack something such a skillful murder? You know, could he have been able to execute all this in the state that he was in? These are just a few of the things that people are asking in terms of. Well, I'll I'll take the first part of that. Yeah. I think, so I'll take the question on maybe his mental state as a drug user during some of these interviews, and I think Luke would like to take a crack at how does he how is he so sloppy on one hand and also so such a master criminal on the other. The first thing that I think you know he's given four statements, right? He's given basically two initial interview statements on the scene or immediately after the, the killings and, sh and then shortly thereafter. And then he gave, you know, that, that uh, interview that he thought was a checkup on the, the investigation to my family's murders with his, the lawyer, then lawyer, um, that was a friend of his that's now in trouble with the bar um, very publicly. But that turned into an interrogation, which ended in, you know, did you kill your wife? Did you kill your son? And his response, do you think I did? And then we had the fourth, you know, real foot and mouth moment that was really a big win for the state, very cringe-worthy from a defense perspective of hearing him admit to setting up the, the shooting on the side of the road and, it, and just lying to everybody about it. And so when you got a guy on trial for two murders and he's, his voice is being played with it in the context of being surrounded by the same lawyers that are in the courtroom with them, you know, that's just so devastating. But just talking about the initial interviews, you know, whether he can explain inconsistencies, let's say with the first two, um, and you know, he's gonna have to explain why did you say you weren't at the kennels? But can, I guess the question is, can being under the influence help explain that? Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, a rule in South Carolina that um, voluntarily, in, you know, in making yourself high or voluntary intoxication is not any way to get a statement suppressed. Um, and all that would have played out in pretrial Jackson v. Deno. 
But he can certainly say, yeah, I was shocked. I was distraught. I just saw the love of my life and my son, you know, you know, done so wrong and I, and I wasn't thinking right. And also, guess what? I was extremely high. Um, you know, I was acting in a way that probably is not how I would act. Now, I was in a bad way with drugs. I was coming off, you know, a couple stints at trying to recover from that. And he can certainly explain that. And he's going to have to explain a lot, um, which all goes to the point of anyone and everyone should not be given four separate interviews or statements in a double murder investigation. But Luke, I guess, as to the juxtapose complete sloppiness and then this murder scene, you know, how does someone operate like that? Yeah, I mean, we represent a lot of folks that were stricken with opioid addiction and I've seen, what I usually see from them is desperation and sometimes fear and panic, but it does not exactly lend itself to complex um, finesse criminal mastermind. Um, so, you know, the crimes that everybody knows are committed by Murdoch, let's talk about the financial stuff. I mean, they were open and obvious and pretty much, for, if anybody had been looking, they would have seen it. Now, I think he, he, this went on under the nose of his law firm for so long due to his privilege, due to his position of being a partner, but he was making a huge paper trail. <laughs> he was just stealing money from his friends and having weak excuses. He was emailing the bank for additional loans. I mean, even though they had a forensic accountant testify for the state, they didn't need that. Yeah, yeah. So, like, his paralegal found a big check just sitting around in a book. She was great. I mean, it floated like a feather to the floor, right? I mean, so you've got that, which was not any... Had anybody been looking, he should have been caught long ago. You know, it was just due to his really privileged relationships with his own bank that he was getting floated some cover. And then you've got the roadside shooting. I mean, his whole concept was, I'm upset, I'm desperate, I'm going to try to have someone kill, kill me so I can get Buster some life insurance money. He stabs a run-flat tire. That wasn't very well thought out. That would be immediately... Throw, throws the knife just right. across the road. I mean, yeah. I mean just right there. And then clearly either flinches or the guy he hires, Eddie, to mm -hmm. shoot him is a terrible shot. I doubt it. Um, so he's just got this... It's just not well planned. So, But then you've got this this real mystery at Moselle where you, what occurred seems to be in contradiction to what any objective evidence shows about at least the relationships amongst the, the, the deceased and him. Loving, supportive, you know, we're seeing videos of birthday parties and laughing Snapchats. And at the end of the day, you have about a 16 minute window from the time the state says the killings occurred to have him clean up, stash guns by himself, have no GSR in his hands, have no blood on anywhere significant, have no wetness or cleanup or, or LCD that would establish any cleanup, um, and be driving to his mom's house. Um, so he's even such a mastermind that he, when he returns and he has faked this horrific finding of his family that he runs back up to the house and thinks, thinks plans enough to load a buckshot followed by a turkey shot in the Benelli just to show a wild panicked inconsistency of fear. To me, that's a real salient point that he's, 
I'm sorry, you don't want to, you can't load a gun like that and expect anything good to happen. So the state is saying that he planned that so well in advance to look like a panicky victim who just found his family that he's going to load this weapon in an unsafe way. But that's not consistent with the way he conducted the rest of his criminal financial business. So it's just, I got a lot of questions um, about that, that it would take, if he's doing this by himself, just some crazy advance, perfect, perfectly timed, no variable planning. Sure, he's busted in the lie that he didn't want to put himself down there at the kennels, and I expect he's going to have to testify about that. I mean, as a former prosecutor, as a lawyer, you know you're suspect number one, so maybe just thought, well, shit, I didn't do anything wrong, so I don't need to put myself down there, and that was dumb. You know, it's dumb to talk to police in the first place if you're the husband of a slain family, but number two, don't start running your mouth and lying because your lie will be busted. Does it mean he's a killer? I don't know, but you do have this juxtaposition between clearly some sloppy, sloppy, sloppy criminal acts and then this really concise, well-planned uh, murder of his family that is... I, yes, I'm biased, have a hard time reconciling the actions of those two people. Yeah. That's what I'd say in my closing argument. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. And a lot of people are asking, like, the possibility of this being, I think you guys mentioned it, like, third-party guilt, correct? Mm-hmm. So, Alec, perhaps knowing who this could be, or, you know, when we floated the Ozark idea a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. if you've been following along since then um what do you guys think will come well first of all let's just circle back a lot of people are wondering if you all think alec will take the stand or not 100 percent, 100 percent. got to and then what will he present what should what do you think in your opinion would be his best angle here he's gonna have to give some some details into i mean they will start by building him up you know, kind of like what you heard from Buster today, we'll, hear, we'll start by hearing a lot about his background, his experiences, you know, the, the good things that he's done. We'll hear about the relationship with the family. They will build him up, build him up, let the jury get, you know, you got to humanize someone that is on trial for a double murder. This trial is a little bit unique in the sense that sometimes when a defendant, now again, he doesn't have to testify. If he doesn't testify, Judge Newman will say that you know, the jury cannot consider that as any kind of evidence against him. He's presumed innocent. He's got his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. However, normally when the defendant chooses to testify, it's the first time the, the jury really gets to, in many, many cases, hear from that person. Here it's different. They've, they've seen video recorded interviews. They've had uh, interrogation videos. Hell, they've gotten rehab, uh, phone interrogation videos. So we've heard a bunch from Alec Murdoch. And so now he's going to have to really, you know, lay himself open, talk about what he knows. He's going to have to, if I were that defense, I'd be trying to present something plausible to the jury. And we've seen it a little bit in the cross-examination of some of these witnesses, bringing up some of the local gangs and various things. But you got a whole bunch of money missing with, in our opinion, you can get a lot of opioids for $50,000 a week. 
That insane amount that doesn't add up to no, that personal use. That does not make any sense. Um, so I think you know they're gonna. He's gonna have to flesh out a lot, and I think he's gonna have to own the financial crimes. He's just gonna have to own it. He's not. I mean, he's his goal is never to. In my opinion, I think in our opinion, beat. He's not gonna try to beat those charges. He is trying to clear his family name. He's trying to clear his name. Um, from being the the Murdoch that you know committed such horrible acts, I mean, he's been his family has been such a prominent. I don't like that you you know everyone's prominent, right? Every family you know who's who's got a little bit of money or power gets that prominent. But they've been, I and mean, this is a family that's been for better or worse the center of that part of the world. You know everything ran through them, so it's a legacy. It's almost a legacy analysis. And he wants to clear his name for the family that are sitting behind him in the courtroom, for the, the world that thinks he killed his wife and son. And so I, I think he's going to certainly take the fall on the financials. But his whole goal is to clear his name on the, on these two family slings. Lou, do you got any thoughts? Yeah, and clearly he doesn't want to get convicted of double murder. If he goes down for double murder, he's getting a life sentence. There's no question about that. We've, we've been in front of plenty of murder cases in front of Judge Newman. On a double is definitely what you're getting. Now, would he get a life sentence if he just pleads to all his financial crimes? Probably not. He's going to get a significant sentence, but probably one that includes a bunch of restitution and one that he can probably have a, an end date. Um, but the murder is the thing he cares about right now. He's going to have to get up there and be convincing and not just speculate and not just throw some stuff out there at the wall, it's going to have to be, look guys, hypothetically due to my opioid use, I got in over my head with some criminal element. They realized I was a big fish. You know, let me tell you where the money went. I was washing their money and I had, you know, or they had, you know, basically me paying, you know, for their protection or that they wouldn't out me for financial crimes. Kind of once you, He's going to have to show proof that once this criminal element got their hooks in him, that they were essentially extorting him. He's going to have to show the receipts. It can't just be, I think it could have been this. He's going to have to say, I know it was this. I know it was these folks. Here's why. Let me tell you about this credible threat I got. It, yes, I was stressed about my finances, but my finances were because of these guys. And, and I was a victim to my own opioid use, and they could put their hooks in me. Only then, if, if that rings true, the jury is going to use their common sense and he's going to be under a withering cross-examination, I would say, from John Meadows, who's the most experienced criminal lawyer for the state. If it holds up, he's got a chance um, because of some of the things like today with Mike Sutton, who showed that these angles are very hard for a trajectory for 6-4 Alex Murdoch to really pull off. And we definitely got two shooters. And the state hasn't really tried to answer that question. So all of that is to cast reasonable doubt. And if he has reasonable doubt, he has a chance. But it can't be done without him. You know, we did have a question from a viewer about, well, how in the world is Buster able to stay in the courtroom and still testify? And, you know... Normally, witnesses are sequestered. We do it in all of our big trials. Any, you know, any witness is made to stay out of the courtroom if they're going to have a part to play 
in the trial on the witness stand. However, because Buster is a victim by statute, as the brother of Paul and the um, son of Maggie, there's something called the Victim's Rights Act, and he gets to be an observer in the courtroom throughout the duration of the trial, even if he's going to be taking the stand. So that that is the answer to that question. And experts who might who are allowed to rely on other experts can observe. Like you heard today, Mike Sutton listened to the testimony from the pathologist. He listened to the testimony of, of other expert witnesses. So he's allowed to do that. And generally, you know, the state or defense lead investigator who might be summarizing the case is also allowed to be in the courtroom. But every other witness has to be sequestered until they testify, and then they can sit there after the fact. People had a question, um, speaking of sequestering, uh, people had a question about the jury um, and what instructions they would be given. Or do you think that that means, like, after the trial is done? Okay. Yeah, that, that's going to be the... The jury instructions are going to be the ju commonly referred to as the jury charges. So they're going to get a bunch of stuff. And some of it we may not know just yet, but they're going to get instructions on the law of reasonable doubt. They're going to get witness credibility instructions. They're going to get the elements of murder. They're going to get um, what the presumptions of innocence is, what the state's burden of proof is. You know, whether you're talking about the weight of evidence, you know, the judge will say that you can't give any inference to the fact that one side had, let's say, more witnesses than the other. It's about really the quality of the witnesses. In this particular case, they're going to get evidence of that suicide. And, you know, Luke and I have been saying for a couple of weeks now, here and also some other platforms, that it was such a big legal power move and the state was able to get in the evidence of his attempted suicide because under our law there's the Cartwright case um, which kind of you know runs the rule on this particular issue but now the state is going to be able to get a jury instruction that says that the, that the jury consider an inference of guilt from his attempted suicide and you know we had a case like this two years ago where our client tried to kill himself um, after a, a shootout. And so, you know, it was uh, a very close in time nexus there. You know, our client, you know, it was moments later here, it was months later, but because of the fact that they got that in, the state will certainly be seeking to get that instruction in. You know, this, some cases where the, you know, here out in Murdoch is saying, I didn't do it, someone else did it, or there's just not enough evidence to show that he did it. But in some other cases, there would be, you know, lesser included offenses, you know, underneath murder, which murder carries 30 life. Underneath that is voluntary manslaughter, which carries up to 30. And then under that, you have involuntary manslaughter. So this is not a, you know, rush of blood to the head, you know, heat of passion where you might find uh, voluntary manslaughter charges. This is not going to be a reckless disregard for human life kind of thing in a vehicular homicide where you might get a lesser included for uh, involuntary manslaughter. It's just going to be, so often there's a, bat, a battle. A straight it. This is a straight it. so there won't be any lesser included charges that, that the defense or state will be asking for. Um, and, the, and the key thing about Judge Newman, and he's a little bit unique uh, around the state in terms of certain court judges, 
he is going to print, he hasn't been letting the jurors take their own notes, but he will give them written jury instructions to study back in the jury deliberation room. In our experience, that's a little bit unique. Most judges don't do that. They just say, they'll, they'll be, um, Judge Newman, before he gives them the, all the evidence, all the exhibits, everything in the case, he will read to them in a very long way, all the jury, all the law, all the jury instructions. He'll read it to them. He'll then have uh, the clerk of court assemble all the evidence, all the exhibits from both sides, and then he'll take what he's written and he'll bring that back to them so they can pour over the law while also pouring over the exhibits. Um, thank you for all that. That's really good information. Um, people are wanting to know if Alec is brought to the stand, if he agrees to testify, is he then later still allowed the opportunity to plead the fifth, perhaps like in a cross? Or has he forfeited that right? Or would it just look bad? <laughs> no, he's allowed to plead the fifth. He's only on trial for murder, so he could, could technically plead the fifth relating to fraud against you know, his law firm, stealing clients. But the question is, strategically, does he? Because it is a bad look. You know, this is for all the marbles. So his lawyers may not want it to appear like he's holding back. They, you know, a jury is going to want to hear some contrition, some kind of, my bad, I was desperate. Very well, if he has an Ozark-style theory, and he's under the gun, and he's in over his head, and he's maybe somehow being forced to be extorted, it might even help his financial crimes cases if he has some type of duress type reason. But I just think, yes, he has the right from an optics perspective. Does he do it? I doubt it. That is very interesting, Luke. I mean, depending on what he says, like we've all, like we all discussed, I think everyone understands that 50 grand a week is way too much just for your average opioid consumer. Uh, a lot of oxy. So something else is going on. So if he had, if he can, I mean, the master stroke by the defense would be a scenario where he's explaining why he's doing the financial crimes in a way that also allows there to be light shed on who could have done the killing. Yeah, that would be the real master stroke by the defense. I don't know if that's the, the facts or not, or if they can establish that. But that would be very interesting if he's explaining why he's doing all the stealing to to you know get out from some greater evil. So we'll we'll see. But I I am a hundred percent certain that Alec Murdoch is taking the stand. He's got to. Any other last thoughts before we wrap it up for the evening? No, I you know in terms of what's going to happen the rest of the week. I, I think we're going to see a pathologist. I think to Luke's point, you know, there wasn't a lot of testimony listed today from the expert about that second shot to Paul that really killed him. I mean, there was some limited, but I think we're going to certainly hear from a defense pathologist. Luke, you think we're going to hear from a firearms expert? I'm torn. I think it seemed like the defense was very upset about kind of the firearms expert Paul Greer saying that the gun was a family gun due to mechanical marks based on ejection and extraction and not just a, a sheer test fire analysis. 
But I think that, especially through Buster today and through other witnesses, they've got out kind of the idea that Paul was so loose with his guns that really there's an opportunity for someone who wanted to hurt them to potentially take weapons off, off the farm itself. So they might go with that rather than fighting the firearms evidence. I don't know, but we could hear from some other people that we don't even know about. We're definitely going to hear heavy experts, Alec himself, um, maybe some other family members that can shed some light on the dynamic of the family, but it'll be the week, I think, for sure. Yeah, and follow along with us. We are on YouTube, so we'll be uploading this full podcast that we did live, but if you missed any in the beginning, um, we'll upload the full video to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Instagram, obviously TikTok, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, follow along on Twitter, and I think that covers all of them. Um, we really look forward to it, and follow along to see any updates about going live again in the future. Um, yeah, this is the Sheila Law Firm from South Carolina. And this was episode, episode two. two. Episode two of The Accused. Thank you guys.